It's good to see you this morning. We've been walking through the book of Acts for a bit now. Um, We now begin kind of our our ninth month through this journey. And as we do, um, I want you to do this this morning. Hold there in Acts 15, um, but I want you to turn to Amos. Good old Amos. Amos is the section of your Bible where you're probably going to have to lick your finger, right? I mean, just, you're going to have to, because I imagine the pages are kind of sticky. Amos is between Joel and good old Obadiah. Obadiah. And so, if there's elders in here, we need to do a study on Obadiah. Right? Let's get that happening. Obadiah. Okay. Hold Amos chapter 9. If you hold Amos 9, just have, grab something there. Grab the guest card. Grab something uh, that you have. Hold Amos because we're going to go to Amos in just a second. How many of you, when you hear the word Amos, you're thinking of famous Amos cookies this morning? All right, that's good. That's good. Um, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Great nursery rhyme, right? Real encouraging. A great nursery rhyme of, of one ending up in great runes, which it did for Humpty Dumpty. But today I want to tell you how God takes runes and he rebuilds them for a great purpose. That's the story of God. That's what he's about. That's his heart. And that's what we're going to see today. Before we do, what I want to do in Acts 15 is, is remind you where we were last week. If you weren't here, I'll get you caught up where we're at, what's happening, because the context is key to where we go today. Um, And then we're going to, again, look back at the grace of God and how the grace of God, the men that we're going to see in this text today, the grace of God is such a big deal that they're willing to lay their life down for it. They're willing to take time. They're willing to write a beautiful letter. And and they care so much about souls. And it's so evident in this text. And so as we saw last week, there are two men in the city of Antioch. Antioch beautiful city in, in Syria, and it became the, the, the hub, the, the leading area of the conversion of Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas, many, a few chapters ago, were, were sent out from Antioch, and they were sent to go to different cities, uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, you name it, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, to Gentiles, and that now pagans, those who were once uh, completely not even considered candidates for the gospel now are being called to come into the fold of the church and to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so Paul and Barnabas, that was their mission. They came back to Antioch. Upon coming back to Antioch, some men, we pick up in chapter 15, we did last week, come down to Antioch and start telling the Gentile believers that they've got to now add something to the gospel. To receive the grace of God, they've got to be circumcised. And then eventually they're going to tell them that they got to obey the Mosaic law as well. This disturbed Paul and Barnabas. They disagreed with this greatly. And so the church sent them to Jerusalem, we saw last week, to meet with the church council there with um, the likes of Peter, the church leader James. And there they gather to discuss and talk about this issue of salvation. Are there any other qualifications? And you remember last week, the stand was taken that there's not 
That it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And so Peter gave the Magna Carta of Christianity and he took the stand before the church council. Answering the question, how can one be saved? And he told us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And so after Peter spoke, Paul and Barnabas stepped up and shared about the miraculous work of God among the Gentiles. And then that's where we pick up Today. And so let's look at this in chapter 15, verse 13. It says, After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. So after Paul and Barnabas speak to the church council, James, the church leader in Jerusalem, will stand up and conclude, giving a resolution that will literally carry the day and conclude this gathering. And so in verse 14, it says this, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, who is Simeon? Well, it's the Aramaic translation of Peter. Okay, so it's Simon. It's Simon Peter. And so James is referring here back to what Peter has just said to the church council. And he has summed it up by saying that Peter is letting you know that God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And so what was Peter doing that day? He was letting the church know that God was coming to the Gentiles and not saying you've got to be circumcised. And he wasn't saying you've got to go obey the Mosaic law. No, he came to the Gentiles and proof in the pudding was back in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius in his household. And he called them not by works, but by grace alone. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They trusted in the Lord as Savior of their life. And so it was by grace. And Peter declared that. And so James is referring back to that. And saying that Peter spoke about how God had gone to the Gentiles to take a people for himself. And so this is James' main point of his resolution this morning that we must Remember, and he's going to give us supporting evidence of his defense of this. And look at verse 15. Here's what he will use. It says, with this, so with what Peter said about God taking a people from the Gentiles by grace alone, with this, the words of the prophets agree, meaning they're in line with, they're in harmony with. Just as it is written. And so we're going to read that in just a second. But here's, here's a point I want you to get before we get to the, the crux of the message today. Is this. As James is going to quote these Old Testament prophets and primarily Amos. I want you to see that there's unity in God's word. From Genesis to Revelation. The word of God is harmonious. And it stands on this. In fact, I was reading Isaiah 58 just a a bit ago, verse 12, and and I love it. it. It talks about rebuilding ruins and allowing the old foundation to rise up. And as I think about that old foundation, as we just follow the text from Genesis to Revelation, that foundation comes back time and time again to this. It is about grace. God is a gracious God. And from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that's what we read. God is a God of grace. He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy, undeserving kindness, unending grace. And that's the message. And it's, it's in unity from 
Amos to Acts, we see it. And so here what I want us to read today as we look at verse 16 is James is going to share kind of, this is his proof text. This is the evidence. This is what he's going to stand on for saying, I'm with Peter. It's by grace alone. And here's the text he's going to use. And it's an interesting text. But at the end of the day, it speaks the heart of God, it speaks the heart of the gospel, and it speaks hope to everyone in this room and to everyone outside these doors. And so listen to what James is going to say about runes being rebuilt to become glorious runes. And so look at verse 16. Let me read through verse 18 so we get... um, An idea here, and then we'll go back and look at the verses specifically. After these things, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. And so, James is standing this day, and he's speaking words from what was written in the book of Amos, specifically chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, which I want us to look at. If you'll turn there uh, right uh, right now. (laughs) Um, For James, this is the decisive truth that settled the issue for him. Whether or not the Gentiles had to earn salvation by works outside of simply believing grace alone through faith alone. And so this settled the issue for him that it is by grace that the Gentiles are accepted into God's family. And so before we look at verse 11 in Amos 9, look at verse 8 because this gives you the context. This helps us understand what's going on here. Look what happens. It says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. The sinful kingdom is a reference to all the sinful nations, those who are, are, are disobedient to God. That's the idea. And so I will would destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. So even what God is saying here is even Israel, the house of Jacob, is included with the sinful kingdom right now because they're being disobedient. But he will not utterly destroy them. Then in verse 9, for behold, I am commanding and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations as grain is shaken in seeth, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. So what is he saying here? It's a word of judgment. It's a word of punishment. It's It's a word about the wrath of God falling on the sinful nations of the world including Israel. But he says with Israel, I will keep and I will guard and I will protect a remnant for my namesake. But not those who are arrogant and prideful, according to verse 10. So you read that and you think, man, okay, so that's judgment. And so that's the context. So, So literally nations, including those even in Israel, will experience runes. They will experience destruction. But look at verse 11. In that day, so in that day is is looking to a future time. And we'll come back to that in a second. Something in the future. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David or the tabernacle of David and wall up its breaches. 
I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Look at verse 11 again. So in that day, we'll look at that in a second. But in that day, he's going to raise up the fallen booth of David, wall up the breaches, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old. So he's prophesying judgment. Then he comes along and says, listen, those ruins, those people that are now broken down, those people who have faced the judgment of God, now he's going to turn away his anger and he's going to allow those ruined people to be restored. So the repairing of the booth of David or the tabernacle of David is a graphic way of speaking of the restoration of God's people to spiritual wholeness. So we're not just talking about nations and land and buildings and geography and all that kind of stuff. We are talking about people's lives. We are talking about souls being spiritually renewed and repaired and rebuilt. Those who are broken down now being repaired, renewed, and restored. But interesting in verse 12 as he refers to the rebuilding of Edom. Listen to what he says. There's a purpose to this, these runes in verse 11. There's a purpose of them being rebuilt. And here's the purpose. That they may possess, interesting, the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. This is not world domination. Right? This is not world domination. This is something completely different. Okay? But what is it? Edom represents the typical hostile nation um, toward God. They were, they were a Gentile people, and they were hostile toward God. So they represent the nations of the world. And what he's saying here is that those who are in ruins will re be rebuilt to possess them. Specifically, he has in mind here not overtaking to the point of we're going to go and rule and dominate. The idea is we're going to overtake them to come in and gather with us. That's the idea. And so what's the point? The point is not world domination. The point is world missions. That's the point. We're going to gather them in to us. So the idea of this possession is that we're taking them, um, these ruined, rebuilt people are going to go and share with them the grace of God. And so as a result, they will be called by my name. So what does that mean in the context of Acts 15? Why does James speak to this? There's great reason, and it's great reason of hope. It's great reason, really, of God's fulfillment. Look again back at Acts 15, verse 16 through 18. So it means, remember back in verse 12, I told you something was going to happen in the future. In that day, this is going to happen. Ruins will be rebuilt. Why? To possess Gentiles who will be called by my name. And so what's the point? The point is that there is a day coming when God will return to his people that have faced God's judgment, have been broken down. They will be repaired. They will be rebuilt by God for a great purpose. And what's that great purpose? Verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things 
known from long ago. So what does that mean? As James is reading this, this means the prophecy of Amos is being fulfilled. Now some in my study, some believe that in that day is referring to the millennial kingdom. Um, in, in your wheelhouse, that, that may be the case, and that's fine. I, I don't think um, any reason to, to disagree with that. But, but I think in that day is a fulfillment that has already happened. Because in that day, people's lives being restored and rebuilt from ruins, from brokenness, to go out and then share the message to the Gentiles. When you read Acts, it lends you to think it's happening. So in that day is when Jesus came. Jesus came. He came to take lives that were in the ruins, lives that were broken, to rebuild them. And he took 12 men. In the Gospels, we read about those 12 men. They turned the world upside down. And God changed their lives, lives in ruins, life broken down, and, and he changed these guys' lives. And then on the day of Pentecost, we read in Acts chapter 2, over 5,000 people were saved. And from there, the beat goes on. To the point as we read in Acts, and I'll quote one of our elders from this morning, he said it's like boomtown. <laughs> it is. I mean, the gospel is just booming, and man, it's spreading from Jews to Gentiles. And lives of runes are now being restored. And so here's another question. How does this refer back to Peter? Because remember, James is talking about Peter. He's saying, hey, listen, remember what Peter said about the Gentiles being a people taken now for God. He says, Amos was talking about this. And so what does that mean? It, it means this. First, Peter is part of the rebuilt ruins of the people of God. He's right in line with the prophetic scripture. And he did not hoard the blessings of God. But instead, he shared it with the world. Next, Peter became the instrument by which God visited the Gentiles at the house of Cornelius. So this is being fulfilled. How is it being fulfilled? Well, think about this. Back at Amos, he said, listen, I'm going to take ruins that are rebuilt. Peter is a ruined life, rebuilt. And then I'm going to have them go possess the Edomites and the nations for my namesake. So they'll be called by my name. Enter Peter into the house of Cornelius. And the whole household gets saved. And so you have prophecy being fulfilled. So James shows that God had promised to come, rebuild the ruins of people, and make those very people the instrument he would use to reach the nations. And so what James is saying, it's happening. He's doing it. He's doing it. I want you to look at a text with me. It's up on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. Listen to what Paul says about what's happening. He says, so then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And you are God's household. Who's he speaking this to? Gentiles. Those who were once outside are now brought in. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We're reading about that now. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple 
in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Runes rebuilt to be the people of God. That's what God's doing. And this is what God was doing in the first century. This is what he's doing today. But I want to bring this down. I want to bring this down to where we are. And to think this morning about two questions. Last week, the question was asked, how can one be saved? The clear answer, one is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, Jesus Christ alone. That's the answer. Two questions we see this morning, I think, rise up in this text are this. Who are we? Question of identity. Second question is, why are we here? A question of purpose, a question of destiny. First, I want you to know that we are all the ruins that God is speaking of. Ruins in the process of being repaired and rebuilt by the grace of God. How? Think about this. You and I, the Bible tells us, are, built in the, into, are born into ruins. Maybe saying, what, what does that mean? We believe that in the fall of Adam, back in Genesis chapter 3, as Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 5, that the fall of Adam affects every human being that has ever been born. And they're born into depravity, meaning they're born into sin. The Bible tells us all have sinned. They have missed the mark. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Sam White, I know you get this. When you shoot your, your bow and arrow, right, man, in archery, you understand about missing the mark, right? You, you know about hitting the mark. feels good, right? But, but hitting the mark, falling short of hitting the mark, the standard, all right, is what God has in mind here. We've all missed that mark. We've all fallen short of that. We're built, we're born into the ruins. We're perishing, facing eternal death. But the story is we can be rebuilt. We can be renewed. We can be restored. And that's what Paul's testimony was. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, anyone who's in Christ is a new creature. The old things, the ruins, have gone away. And behold, new things have come. We're renewed. We're rebuilt. You see, the ruins of life, they're real. They're real. No doubt, we've all experienced different experiences of the runes. The runes come by what we do sometimes, things and choices we have made, and sometimes they come by things that have happened to us. We face the runes of life at times because of choices we make, poor choices, ungodly choices, disobedient choices. As a result, we experience the ruins of those consequences. Soul becomes in turmoil, loaded with guilt, loaded with shame. Sometimes the ruins are physically, they're emotionally. Sometimes they're even financially, even relationally. We face such ruins because of our choices. But sometimes we find ourselves in the ruins because something that happened to us or something that's been done to us. Our feelings tell us in such cases that we're in ruins. Even our beliefs believe that. We come to a place where it becomes reality for us. We ask questions during such times like, why me? Where was God? Why did God allow this to happen? What am I being punished for? We feel hopeless in such times of ruin. 
But whether it's something we've done to place us in ruins or whether it's something that's happened to us that makes us feel ruined, makes us to believe that that's reality, I want you to hear in this text today that God takes the ruins and he makes them unruined. And I think that's a great working definition of what grace is. Grace is God taking people who are ruined by the sin and the effects of sin, the consequences of sin, their choices of sin, on and on and on and on. And he makes them unruined. He makes them unruined. Does that mean there's still no scars? No, there's still scars. Does that mean that those scars maybe are visible? Yeah, they're visible, but they become part of God's beautiful story of his grace. It looks like this in John chapter 8. I love this story. This woman who's literally been caught in the act of adultery gets dragged into the temple courts by the legalistic Pharisees and Jewish leaders of the day. And Jesus is there. He's teaching. He's hanging out. And they bring this lady in. And this lady's horrifically humiliated, I would bet. Experiencing the rooms of life. And obviously there's other things going on with that text. But in that moment, I love what Jesus does. He looks at the men in the room and he says, hey, listen, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And I love the text because the older ones leave first, right? They got some wisdom. They exit. Before you know it, it's just Jesus and the lady standing there. And he looks at the lady and he says, hey, is, is anyone else here to condemn you? Is there anyone to condemn you? She said, no. No one else is left here standing. And he said to her, neither do I. And he tells the lady, go now and leave your life of sin. You see, the grace of Jesus meets the runes of that lady that day so that she could be unruined. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's what Amos was talking about. It's what James is speaking of here. The woman is told, go and sin no more, meaning leave the ruins and let the grace of God guide you down the path of a life of transformation, of being made new. So you and I this morning, that's who we are. We are people in the process of being repaired, of being rebuilt by the grace of God. And then the second question is, well, okay, well, then why are we here? Well, he answers that in verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And so the purpose is this. God takes ruined people. He makes them unruined. He restores them, renews them to reach the nations so that they may seek the Lord and call on his name. And so he takes the scars of our lives who he has come and healed by his stripes, Isaiah tells us. And he makes our lives a beautiful story of grace to the world so that they would come and be gathered in and call on his name. That's the point. And James is saying, that's what God's doing. And it's simply by his grace. I want to do this. I want to take the next few minutes and I want us to look at this last little part. We're going to do it in a big chunk. But there's, there's two points I want to make because I think they're significant. Because not only does grace save us and take ruined lives and rebuild them. That's what the grace of God does. To go and reach the nations. But grace also keeps us and grace also guides us. And, and I want us to see that. 
And so listen to verse 19, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to read nine verses to you, okay, real quick. But I want you to, re- to listen to them, hang on to them, okay? So James says this, and then he says, therefore. So in light of everything James just said, here's what he says in conclusion. It is my judgment that we do not trouble, hang on to that phrase, those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled and from, uh, from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Who are those guys? Judas, called Basabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and uh, Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greeting. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we have no instruction, listen to this, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we've sent Judas and Silas, who then them themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. And then look, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. We'll read that about the essentials in just a second. Here's the first point I want you to make. Here's what James and, and Barnabas and Paul, who are willing to lay their lives down for Jesus Christ, James says, and Silas and Judas, these guys he's mentioning, man, these guys will lay their life down for this one thing that I want you to re- hear. The souls of the Gentiles in Antioch are disturbed and troubled. It even says in verse 24, their souls are unsettled. And so Barnabas and Paul and all these guys, they will go to great lengths, even lay their life down, so that the souls of the Gentiles are at peace and no longer troubled. What were they troubled about? The news that, hey, they've received the Holy Spirit. They've trusted in Christ. They're, they're saved. But then they're realizing, wow, the, now I've got these other qualifications that I have to live up to, to to be saved. And so they're troubled by this. But Paul and Barnabas and all these guys were like, no, no. We've got to settle their souls and have them at peace to know it's by grace alone that you cannot earn salvation. And so they're willing to go to great lengths to make the message that it's grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And James says, we've got to write this. We've got to write this. So they're no longer burdened. And so the first point I want you to get out of this letter that they're going to write is that, hey, it's grace alone. It's always been by grace alone. It will never change. It's by grace alone. But within this, we see something else that I think is huge, that grace not only saves us, but grace keeps us and guides us. Because here's the deal. Grace takes us from where we're at, from the runes, rebuilds us, and then sets us out in a great journey of being renewed so that God can use us to reach the world. And so grace continues to keep us and guide us. Now, how does that happen? Well, producing fruit, right? 
So look at verse 28 and 29. He already mentions it in 1921, but now here's what they're going to put in the letter. These essentials. Now, these essentials are not essential to salvation. So don't read what he's going to write in verse 29 and say, okay, well, these things are added to it. And they're not additives to salvation. They're desired fruits for people that have been saved. And so look what he says in verse 29, that you would do this, that you would abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, fornication and sexual morality. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. What a letter, right? And so, what's the point? James is saying this, you're saved by grace alone, but the grace of God keeps you and guides you. God desires these fruits. Now, what's interesting about the things that he says here, he mentions four things, okay, but really two. He says, abstain from idolatry, okay? If you read in places like Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, Paul brings up an issue with the Gentiles. He says, listen, you you eat communion, right, bread and drink that represent Christ, but then you also eat these things that are sacrificed to demons. (laughs) Paul's like, what's up with that? You know, that doesn't, that doesn't mix well. It mix well. The whole point that James is making here is the same thing that Paul was making. Things that are sacrificed to pagan gods and to idols have nothing to do with. And so the point is this. Have nothing to do with idolatry. Don't have anything to do with the placing worship that is meant for God alone. And don't give it to other things. But worship God alone. Make him the highest joy of your life. Make him the praise of your life. So he says that. Now they're going to do that by, by how they handle their food that once before they were sacrificing in their pagan rituals and says, hey, listen, that's out. No more of that stuff, right? Get it out. The second thing is sexual morality. He tells them, listen, with the word porneia today, it's where we get the word pornography. And so you can fill in a lot of things in here. And he's saying, abstain from this stuff, adultery, sexual morality, pornography, all these things. Abstain from it. And so what is he saying to the Gentiles? Live a holy life, okay? Abstain from these things. This isn't to receive salvation, but as a result of salvation. Abstain from these things. And then the second point, too, is for the sake of fellowship and unity. Holiness is on the line, but so is fellowship. Why? Remember what James and the apostles said, that the book of Moses is being read in every Sabbath in verse 21, and Moses is being preached. And so what James and the apostles are saying is this, Gentiles, live this way. If you want unity with the Jews, here's one way to make sure that your community with them goes unhindered. Abstain from these things because the Jews hated the fact that here are these guys that had no religion background, right? They didn't know the law. They didn't go to the synagogue. They didn't observe the Sabbath. They didn't do all these things. But now they could just come right in, right, and join the party of Christianity. And they're like, no, man, you got to go through the screen door of Judaism before you go through the door of Christianity. And James and Peter and Paul and all these guys were like, no, no. They are welcome in, but they say to the Gentiles, if you want the unity with the Jews that you so desire, make sure you abstain from these things. And it will create a harmonious body. And that's still true today. Still true today. 
We're united by the essential that we are saved by grace alone. We continue to be united as we seek to live holy lives in community and fellowship with one another around what is good, which abstaining from these things is. And then look lastly, and this is it. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. This is huge. They deliver this. So here's what I want you to get a picture. College football started yesterday, all right? And I want you to picture, I don't know how many people are in Antioch that are believers and Gentile believers that are going to receive this letter, but I just want to build it up, right? I just want to build it up. I, I want it to, this scene to really land, okay? Because sometimes when we read verses, I, I don't know if it lands, right? Because verse 31 is cool. <laughs> it's so cool. And I think it's like college football atmosphere, because these guys, their souls, is dis- they're disturbed. They're unsettled, right? And so the reading of the letter happens. It's huge. This is like Martin Luther Reformation type kind of stuff. This is big stuff. Look what it says. When they had read it, they rejoice because of its encouragement. I bet there was hooping and hollering. I bet there was dancing. Man, I, I bet... Just this crowd went nuts. Yes. Yes. So it is true. The experience I experienced when Jesus came to my heart and my life, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit is now in me and living in me. So that's real. That's real. There isn't any other way. That, that is it. That is it. So that's what happened. It's legit. It's real. I mean, can you imagine that? Because your soul is so troubled and unsettled by all these other qualifications and, and questioning and doubting is what's true, what's right. And now they come back and say, Hey, here's the truth. And then there's possibility, there's hope that we can be united with Jewish believers. Wow. Wow. What a day. What a day. And then there's some logistical things they do, and they help strengthen the church there in Antioch. Guys, amazing grace brings awesome joy. And it still should today. I think that's why when... We sing Amazing Grace, you hear everybody singing, because it is amazing, and it gives us a lot of joy and reasons to rejoice. God has never called you and I to have it all figured out. He's never called you and I to have this pristine life, but God is about taking runes, broken people, He's about rebuilding. He's about restoring. He's about renewing. And he's about taking those lives who have scars, but they represent God's healing. And we're healed by his wounds, the Bible tells us, that he bore on the cross for us. He took the ruins of the cross so that you and I could be restored and rebuilt. And so that we could go and tell the world, What a great God we have. And invite them to come in. You see, that's the mission of the church. It's not to shun. It's not to put up a wall. It's not to say, hey, you got to have it all figured out before you come in. You got to have this stuff down. No. You got ruins? Come join us. Let us tell you how you can be unruined. Meet Jesus. That's what it's about. Let's pray.